and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, currently supported by NAF. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. How is everybody doing? I hope that you're all managing to get some riding in now that the freeze is lifting in most areas of the country. And we might even hear some more about competitions resuming next week, which would be exciting. This week in Horse and Hound magazine, we have our Sport Horse Breeding Special, and our podcast interviewee is the man behind Stallion AI Services, Tullis Matson. Tullis talks about innovative technologies in breeding and famous residents. There's the great big star that's with us now. He arrived last week. We're just flushing him out now, uh, and he, yeah, he hasn't forgotten what to do, that's for certain. So, uh, yeah, it, it, honestly, I feel such an honour to have these amazing horses here. I'll also be joined by my colleagues on the news desk to talk about the upcoming Tokyo Olympics, how horse owners make decisions, and eventing in Scotland. Finally, we have Alan Davies, super groom to Charlotte Dujardin and Carl Hester, back on the podcast with the first of a six-week series. Today, he'll talk about bringing horses back after a break. If the horses have had a complete break, depending on how long you haven't ridden them for, if it's a few weeks, then you need to be really careful how you get back on. We'll hear more from Alan later. So for now, do up your noseband and let's get going. Hello, I'm Polly Bryan and welcome to today's guest interview on the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm joined today by a very prominent and popular figure from the world of sport horse breeding. He is the man behind Stallion AI Services, Tullis Matson. Hi, Tullis. Hi, Polly. Thanks very much for, for today. Um, no problem at all. It's great to have you on. For those who don't know, Stallion AI Services is the UK's largest artificial insemination centre and it's home to some of the latest and most exciting pioneering technologies in equine breeding and genetic preservation. Over the years, the Shropshire Centre has also been home to plenty of equine celebrities as well, including Olympic Stallions, Jaguar Male, Arco and the Mighty Big Star. Tullis, it's probably fair to say that you have a pretty unique and amazing job. It would be great to hear, first of all, about how you actually got into it in the first place and how Stallion AI Services came to be. Yeah, well, thank you for that, Polly. Thank you for that intro. Love the intro. Uh, I do feel I've forgot the, one of the best jobs in the world doing the work I do. And I, have the, I, I feel a bit cheated because I have an amazing team behind me that do all the, a lot of the science side. Mm. So, uh, so, yes, it's a great privilege to be where we're at today. Um, so yeah, all started. I'm very, very dyslexic. So I actually left school. I think I was 16 or 17 with, with no qualifications at all. Uh, and the first job I got was into racing. Uh, I did a, quite a bit of work with a chap called Philip Hobbs, and I was assistant trainer for him for his uh, for a year there. And then, unfortunately, the old the old timber started going on. It got a bit too heavy for that. And then went into <laughs> point, point to pointing. Um, and uh, rode them at sort of 60, 70 races. I, I must admit, I wasn't, I wasn't a very good, good rider at that. <laughs> I think it was just all the dieting and everything. Um, but, uh, but I loved it. Um, then came home and started helping my father out with his, his stud. And he had a, an Irish draft stallion and a thoroughbred stallion. And that's how the sort of the sport horses in the UK were sort of a, a lot of the, the foundation side. So the heavy, the, the, the Irish draft went on the thoroughbreds. And, and it actually all started from an accident. We were actually naturally covering a mare. And it's quite sad, really. And, and um, when the standing covered the mare, he, absolutely, he ruptured her inside uh, during the natural covering. And that mare passed away, which is, happens very, very rarely. But mm. it does happen now and again. And from that day forward, must be, God, I'm looking back 30 years ago now. I said, we're never going to do another natural cover 
here uh, again really so it's really from that day four we went into the AI side um, and I just you know from that one uh, accident I suppose we got into it and I used to have chickens so I used to hatch all the the incubators so I literally cleaned all my incubators out put all my AI stuff very sort of crude way of sort of doing it and uh, and uh, yeah and then it just developed and it's like everything in life it's been in the right place at the right time and mm. sort of grabbing those opportunities and it literally snowballed we literally doubled every year the first year I think we did 12 and then the next year I think it was something like 24 25 mares and it wow. doubled and doubled and doubled and doubled so yeah so what year was it that Stallion AI Services actually was, was born as a, as a business? As a business, we actually started, went on my own in, in 96, but Stallion AI was born in, 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 in 2000. Uh, and, uh, and that's where it, we started, that was that 20, 21 years ago, Stallion AI has been going now. So we're at our 20th year last year, yes. And your work is hugely varied and we'll talk about some some different aspects of it over the course of this podcast but just run me through quite briefly an overview of what happens at the center and what you do in a nutshell so basically we we have stallions in it's a quarantine center so we collect and freeze and cryopreserve um, their semen and so we can indefinitely store it and then we ship it all over the world, and that's the you know the, the world is a very small place now, and we can pretty much touch all ends of the globe and and be able to spread our uh, our fantastic breeds uh, from the UK uh, all over the world. So it's a great way of doing it. Also, obviously, there's there's the fresh and chilled for for mm. the local ones as well. So it's uh, yes, we're predominantly a, a, a collection uh, and freezing centre for stallions and standing stallions, but as we're going to allude to in a minute, that's really take us on a journey of cryopreservation and new technology. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. Just tell me about some of the stallions that you've had at the centre over the years and which ones stick out the most in your mind and your memories? Oh, God, I'm going to get into a lot of trouble. I'm terrible at not naming somebody <laughs> I should have named. There's some amazing ones out there. And honestly, I'm, I'm quite an emotional person. I get wrapped up in some of these stallions as well. So uh yeah we've had i think demonstrators one that always sticks out in my mind mm. he was just the most amazing stallion in, in his career F- ferdy alberg's grand prix y- y- stallion yes and he yeah. came from 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 the broadstone stud and uh he was just he just oozed charisma he just had that likability about him and he he went around with a permanent smile on his face and he was quite cheeky with it which was just so nice <laughs> and so and then we had obviously mill law who was just amazing mm. you know he was a uh, fantastic um uh, obviously advanced eventing stallion and his it's great to see all his young stock keep popping up here there and everywhere and he was pushing over 100 mares a year and at one stage we had I think there was only 10 advanced eventing stallions and we had six of them on our place wow. um, but yes obviously we've had the Arcos who was just mm. amazing it was just such an honor to have him and have someone put their faith in having such an amazing horse uh, with us you know obviously you said Jaguar male before in your intro uh, there are so many and I, I apologize to anybody else out there that I haven't mentioned their stallions because they really <laughs> do all our owners I feel especially uh, proud of that they've supported us because they're the ones that got, got it today. And obviously, there's the great big star that's with yes. us now. He arrived last week. Oh, so we're, lovely. Just, we're, we're just flushing him out now. Uh, and he, yeah, he hasn't forgotten what to do, that's for certain. <laughs> he knows his job. <laughs> yeah, he knows his job. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I do, honestly, I feel such an honour to have these amazing horses here. 
And it's not just horses that you've worked with over the course of your career, is it? I know you've been involved with um, some other slightly more exotic animals. Yeah, there's all sorts. So I, I love my rare breeds. Mm. And I, my father was president of the Rare Breed Survival Trust. When he passed away, uh, they asked me to become a trustee of that. And I really got sort of hooked into it. And I, what, must admit, I was, don't get me wrong, I always enjoyed the rare breeds, but I, I now really got into the passion of it as well and what we could do for using that technology, especially for the Suffolks, the Cleveland Bays, the Clydesdales, the heavy horses. Well, it's not just the heavy horses, it's all the rare breeds. Mm. And we started to be able to see these technologies come along. And it's, you know, every year that we do this, every single year I say, oh, we can't get back. We cut this. Surely there's nothing else that can come along. You know, we've, we've, we've hit the top now. You know, we've got... I'm amazed every year what new technology comes bouncing along that we do. Yeah. And I find it like, obviously, with a sex semen, we had that foal, the Suffolk foal that was born last year. That was just incredible. You know, yes, the work behind the scenes was massive. And some, but yes, it's only one foal, but it's proof of concept. It shows that these technologies can work and they can help. You know, there's only yeah. 72 females left in the country. There's only 300 left in the world. Uh, and we have to do something about them, you know, as they're part of our heritage. I've got a lovely picture of my grandfather ploughing the fields with them, you know, back in the 1940s. And, you know, we, we, I think we have a duty of care to, to, to keep them. And, and if we can use these new technologies, so that goes on that. And then we've gone on to use our freezing extender to be able to freeze elephant semen. I, wow. you know, I, I was absolutely bold. I was, I was asked to go to uh, South Africa in October 19. And I have to still now it's one of the most memorable trips of my lifetime. Been it been darting these elephants out of a helicopter, seven bull elephants we did over a ten day period, and uh, it was just the those most amazing animals. You know, there was ten million elephants at the beginning of the century. There's four hundred thousand now, and they reckon there's going to be only two hundred thousand left by twenty twenty five, and we have to preserve their genetics. So we we were using the equine semen to free to equine, sorry, equine freezing extender uh, to freeze their semen down. And, and, and it was just a most amazing experience being able to collect off these wild elephants, um, freeze their semen down and be so close to them. Even, uh, you know, you can yeah. literally hear the heartbeat because I, I was standing between the, or sitting between the, uh, the front and back legs for, for hours on end and, uh, uh, and just hearing this animal breathe that weighs sort of five tons. It was just incredible, absolutely incredible. I can imagine. So just coming back to um, the sport horse world, the, the technologies involved in artificial insemination and the processes of freezing and distributing semen have really turned the breeding world on its head over the last decade or so, haven't they? What have been the most important milestones? I think it's the improvement of the way that we process semen uh, and being able to show that, you know, I remember doing this, oh, what I say, 25 years ago, uh, people are very shy about using frozen semen and these new advanced technologies. And now people, pretty much everybody embraces them. You know, it was all natural covering years mm. ago. Now I wouldn't be able to give the exact percentages, but it, it must be up between sort of 60 and 80% uh, easily, whereas most probably only about 20% back then. So uh, people have embraced these new technologies and they've seen reap the rewards of being able to get new, new genetics. It's not just about obviously with the ones that we've got, but being able to import genetics and being able to use that side of it. So it's really helped um, uh, our, our breeds. And what I think we've got to see is also everyone sometimes says, oh, 
you know, the British breeding, how good is it? But we export double the amount we import. And I think that just shows what fantastic breeds we have in this country. Yeah. You know, there's about 6,000 consignments came in from 2014 to 16, and 11,000 consignments went out of the country. So that just shows you, you know, how, uh, you know, we've got some great breeds to shout about that are exportable. Absolutely. And talking of, of, you know, these technologies that are growing in, in popularity, cloning is, is something else that's also growing, isn't it? Both in terms of awareness and, and incidents as well. I think for a lot of people, the concept of cloning is still something sort of straight out of science fiction. And it's certainly a contentious issue. But just tell me a bit about your involvement with equine cloning and its significance when it comes to genetic preservation, both sport horses and rare breeds. I, th I think with the cloning side, yes, when 96, when Dolly the Sheep came along, it was very much Frankenstein's work. Uh, I remember when I did AI oh, 30 years ago, I was messing with nature. I remember when embryo transfer, we started doing it, what was it, 15 years ago? Well, that, you're really stepping over a line here. And now those <laughs> are perfectly accepted. Uh, and I think, right, yeah, people see cloning as a step too far. But actually, we, we say so we did a webinar the other night and they and and we, people are starting to see now actually how it can actually help, especially in the preservation side. It can come on absolutely leaps and bounds. We saw the Przewalski horse that was born on the 6th of August last year. And, you know, if we can store these tissue samples and these genetics down and we can reintroduce them at a later date. And we've got a cloned here, you know, uh, Mercus Gem. And, and, yeah. and yeah, they are a normal horse. You know, he, it is he's a, a clone of, of Gem Twist, isn't he? He's a clone of Gem Twist. Mm. That's right. So, um so it's you know they yes and obviously people can do the cats and dogs and things like that as well so people are starting to come around to the idea are there going to be hundreds and thousands of clones everywhere no i don't think there is but in the right attribute they can they can they, it, it, there is a positive side like to anything there's a positive side to it uh, in the wrong context obviously and used in the wrong way obviously it's always going to be a negative thing but there's mm. a lot of positives to be taken out of it and people are starting to see the benefits of it as well especially when it comes to rare breeds it can have huge benefits huge so yeah i'm very very excited about these new technologies that are coming along you know we we've, we've got to use them basically at the end of the day we're, we're the ones that slightly uh, harming, you know, uh, uh, sort of destroying this planet in some way. So we've got to find ways of, of using technology to bolster it up, really. Yeah, and it just seems amazing the the number of different technologies available. Now, you mentioned earlier sex semen, which is where a breeder can essentially choose whether or not they have a cult or a filly. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, there's there's a there's about four percent more DNA in the X bearing sperm, the female sperm, and and. Uh, we can home in on this. We use a company called Cogent, who's just up the road, who do all the bovine work. And yes, so we, we can separate the, the, the male and female sperms, uh, which is quite amazing now, with a 95% accuracy. So yes, you've still got that 5% chance of being the wrong sex. But it's, it's again, when we had that, that, uh, that Suffolk foal ball, it was just brilliant. It was a, it was a long, long 11 months waiting for it to come out. I, my heart was in my mouth. And the first thing I asked, yeah, what, what sex it is. And look, yeah, it was a filly, which is oh, brilliant. Oh, amazing. And what impact has the pandemic had on, on, on breeding, on your business, on you know, the British breeding market over the last 12 months? Um, sort of the British breeding style. We've 
actually been amazed how many people are still breeding horses. You know, I think what it was is I thought last year, this is it. We're going to have to batten down the hatches. We're going to have to be, mm. you know, really try and uh, watch the pennies. And we've actually noticed that the people are breeding more because they couldn't compete the horses. We had more stallions in last summer than we ever had because obviously a lot of stallions couldn't go competing. Uh, and so all these um, uh, the shows were cancelled. So we actually there was a, there was more of an influx of mares and stallions than we've normally seen. So at the moment, it's been okay. Good, good. It's really it's really good to hear that um, the breeding market is in good shape. We have a feature in today's issue of the magazine um, all about the impact the pandemic has had on breeders and and on buyers as well. Um, and I know that you are quoted in that one, which is very very interesting. So just tell me a little bit about life in in your job at the helm of Stallion AI Services. I think you've got some quite funny stories, haven't you, from uh, from your time doing what you do? Yeah, well, I, I do try. I think we all like to have a bit of fun here. And we, I must admit, it's one of the ethos of working here. We've all got to have a lot of fun. And, and try. one of my sort of pastimes is actually uh, I, I like to do a lot of parachuting. I've done 1,600 jumps. Mm. So I literally on a Saturday afternoon, people see me whizzing or a Friday afternoon. They'll see me whizzing out the door with my parachute on, and then literally an hour later, we're back back at my desk again. So just to get <laughs> get my fix. So, um, so no, we, it's it's it is it's a great environment to work on. And I remember one particular story. I don't think I've said this. I, I didn't. I haven't mentioned this one much, but it's totally true. Ooh, I promise well. you. Um, our telephone number. I'm not here to publicise my my business, by the way, but it's treble six two nine five. But Whitchurch Hospital's number is treble six two nine two. In other words, one digit above it. Oh gosh. So yes, you can see where this is going. <laughs> so, so and I remember this, I was in the old yard. I remember this. This was uh, I was particularly stressed out one day. There was obviously a stallion that wasn't wasn't want, didn't want to give me the goods or, or whatever, and we were trying to collect off him. And I was particularly stressed. And the phone rang, and it said, uh, "Can you tell me how Roger's getting on?" And I said, um, "Yes, yes, I can tell you how Roger's getting on." Um, he's uh, he's he was a bit shy when he first came into us. Blabido is absolutely brilliant now. He's good as anything. We managed to collect off him now every time. It took quite a few jumps to get the collection off him. I said his semen quality is brilliant. I think his pregnancy results going to be fantastic. And she there was a silence at the end of the phone. <laughs> she went, pardon. What do you mean his semen quality is brilliant? This lady said. I've dropped my grandfather off at the hospital to have his foot looked at and you're telling me that he's got good semen quality <laughs> and then the penny dropped and I went oh my god oh my gosh <laughs> and to sort of backtrack very quickly we did have another one where somebody <laughs> rang up and again for us this all trend somebody rang up and said is the um, do you have a maternity ward there because Whitchurch is quite a small um a small cottage hospital and of course okay. I thought I just presumed I said yes it said it's next door um, and uh, and uh, she said, tell me a bit about it. I said, oh, well, they're quite large. Because, of large. course, you do have yeah. Twemlow Stud next door, exactly. don't you? Run by, by your brother Edward. And I started saying how they were bedded down on straw. They've got CCTV <laughs> cameras. I didn't get quite so far before she stopped me on this one. Uh, but, yes, so that was uh, that was rather an embarrassing, embarrassing moment, but quite funny. I don't know what they thought. Poor lady. I must oh, have gosh. horrified her. So, yes. <laughs> uh, but, no, we do like to have a lot of fun here, and we've got some... A most amazing team out in mm. that yard. Uh, it's not always easy, and uh, I must admit, we always try and lift everyone's spirits by having a bit of fun, you know, even when the things are, are down a bit. So yeah, Good. we try. Yeah. Good. So 
what's next? What's next for for breeding? What's next for stallion AI? I think I think for breeding, uh, you know, we've got some amazing stallions, uh, not just us, but in the country. And I think you know, obviously, it's great when people are using sort of the British stallions, which I think is fantastic. Mm. Uh, I think there's so many. Ixi is, you know, I can just see it's absolutely going to explode on the scene if it's not already. So I can really see that taking off. Just just explain yep. briefly for us what ICSI is. So uh, now I've got to say, right, intercytic sperm injection. So this is basically using one sperm cell and injecting it into an egg or an oocyte uh, to produce a pregnancy. So the beauty about this, you only need one sperm cell and and you you harvest the eggs it's called opu so you can usually in the winter time so it means you can take breed off your mare in theory out of seasons and when you take these eggs off your mare sometimes you can have between one and three pregnancies sometimes it off one flush so and using a minimal amount of semen so it's it see i really can see taking the equine world uh, more and more by storm, being able to use stallions that you can't always, and also being able to use the sex semen because that's the best way mm. of using sex semen is is through the ICSI method. So I can see that really taking off. I can see these new technologies, obviously being able to freeze more, uh, and maybe there is going to be a bit more, obviously the, the the cloning going on and so forth, and that's led us off. One of our things that I'm most passionate about at the moment is we've just set up a charity called Nature's Safe which is one of the first charities uh, for a living tissue bank. So we've, we've got this living tissue bank of tissue that we can uh, bring back to life. So and this again, this wow. happened today. We had Chester Zoo ring us up this morning at nine o'clock. Unfortunately, it's a monkey. I've got it in front of me because I couldn't pronounce it. Well, not the, the name of it, sorry. Uh, it's called a tamarin. Apparently exceptionally rare and that passed away. So they sent us the, uh, the a part of its ear in and part of its testicles. And we've managed to extract a bit of semen, six straws, I think it is, we got off it this afternoon. And we're going to freeze down its ear so we can freeze it down in a cryoprotectant. And then we can bring that back uh, at a future date. Um, so I find this sort of science that we've learned from the equine industry. All this has come off the back of the equine industry. And we've managed to portray it. And if ever, anybody's seen the David Attenborough films, you know, mm. the way the planet's going, you know, we, we're, we've lost... Uh, you know we're down to 30 percent of our world's habitat left from 60 percent 80 years ago there's seven billion people in the in the world as opposed to two and a half billion people mm. 80 years ago we've our biodiversity shrinking so we're we're, we're we're creating one of the first ever living tissue banks for wild animals basically uh that, that um so i find that is absolutely fascinating so that's all on the back of the equine that we learned so that's sort of something we literally just got going in the last few weeks. So I, I'm, I'm so positive for the future, uh, really, on, on certain, certain aspects of using technology to enhance what we're doing as a breeding industry. Oh, that's so interesting to hear about. Tell us, it's been a real joy having you on the Horse and Hound podcast today. It's been fascinating to hear about everything that you and your team do and how many exciting developments there are unfolding in the breeding world. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, I really, really appreciate it, Polly. I, we all love what we do here for a job and you never know what tomorrow is going to bring. So just watch this space. Oh, brilliant. Thanks, yeah. Talis. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed. The Horse and Hound podcast is currently supported by NAF. Maximise your stallion's fertility with new five-star fertility from NAF. Address motility, target sperm production and support libido. 
with fertility-focused ingredients formulated to maximize sperm health and sperm quality, support his performance today with successful coverings and collections. So I'm joined today by all three members of our news team to chat over what's been happening in the equestrian world this week. So firstly, it's hello to our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are things going with you, Eleanor? Oh, it's brilliant because all the snow has gone and I've been able to ride and I feel a bit bad for moaning, seeing as Becky said about 12 feet of snow um, but <laughs> and we had like a few inches, but I did complain all week and now it's gone. So it's great. Yes, indeed. Becky Murray is our news writer and she lives in Scotland, for anyone who hasn't picked that up already. Becky has had, as Eleanor said, about 12 feet of snow and all her pipes frozen. Becky, give us a quick rundown on your frozen pipe situation. I don't know where to start. Um, so on Thursday, we discovered we had no water, no flushing toilet, no shower. And basically, I wanted to, well, I did cry at one point over the weekend. But and combined with getting snowed in and my stables filling with snow, it was a bit of a weekend. But I'm pleased to say that everything kicked back in yesterday. I've had a shower and my horses are living out now while the snow defrosts in their stables. Oh my goodness. I'm actually really impressed if you only cried once because I think I would have cried <laughs> just nonstop if that situation happened to me, to be honest. But clearly they make you tough in Scotland. So well done. <laughs> and we also have with us our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. Lucy, what's your snow freezing flushing water situation? <laughs> oh, well, nothing compared to Becky's. And like Eleanor, I felt quite, um, I was moaning about the ice and the snow and we had about a foot and then I heard from Becky and I thought oh blimey I have nothing to moan about down here so um but yes it's practically tropical here today it was sort of balmy uh, 10 degrees I think outside so yeah shorts weather nearly <laughs> it has really warmed up I went out for a walk yesterday and although I wore my hat I didn't wear my gloves for the first time in about a month which was a big moment so yeah well these are the things that, that keep us amused in lockdown when there's not a lot else going on but uh, we've still got plenty of news to report luckily it just keeps on coming and Lucy I'm going to come to you first this week you were digging about in the FEI website which is a hobby of yours this week um, and you found something which initially looked quite alarming and you sent an email which definitely got me reading what was this all about I did and yes as you know digging around in the FEI website is one of my one of my favorite hobbies which is which is very nerdy of me but there's often things buried in there which are interesting including this so the FEI put up a notice uh, a bit earlier this month which was titled I think it was something really quite frightening like equine coronavirus and I thought oh my goodness but it's really not as as concerning as it first as it first appeared and anyway I wanted to unpick what it was because as you said Pippa when I sent around that email everyone came back saying oh my goodness what the, what on earth is this and so that's why I've addressed it this week and we've gone about debunking all the myths and unscaremongering it and actually got into quite some interesting detail about about plans to Tokyo so that's what we're looking at. Okay so what is the story this is not pony covid as as we know it in humans at the moment what um, what what is what is equine coronavirus and why is it not actually something we need to be alarmed about? Well, the reason the FEI had put this notice out was because the Japan Racing Authority had been in touch with them because mainly, I think, about people's nervousness and a lot of anxiety in, in general around the term coronavirus. But 
Coronaviruses are, I mean, it's just a generic term for a group of a group of viruses. And so they found some antibodies in some horses, not on an Olympic site, but again, it was in Tokyo, so not hugely far away. They found some uh, equine coronavirus antibodies in these horses, but it's a, it's a, typically it's a very mild, very mild illnesses. Um, so there's nothing to be concerned about. Also, it's really important to know that this is unlinked to COVID-19. It can't be transmitted to humans. And I think the overriding message really is that it's not something that horse owners need to be worried about, whether they're horse owners here or they're owners of horses that may be travelling to compete at the Olympics or Paralympics. But at the same time, it was quite reassuring to hear to hear that from vets, from the FEI as well, and to also hear all about the biosecurity measures that are in place, not just for, you know, for this virus, but just in general to keep the horses safe when when they travel to the games. Mm, what sort of thing is in, is in place for, the, for our elite equine athletes when they go to Japan? So no matter where they're travelling from, they're all going to be subject to a seven-day quarantine period. And that also includes if there's any horses that are based in Japan that are travelling to the Games. You know, it's not just horses flying in. And they'll be transported in bubble to bubble uh, between the airport, the main venue and the event and cross-country site. So horses are not going to be going anywhere outside a sort of really tightly controlled bicycle zone and we know how organized the uh, Tokyo organizing committee are anyway and how on top of things like this they already are so it was really encouraging to hear the sort of detailed breakdown you know really specific things even right down to you know ramp being disinfected for each plane load of horses coming in uh, people who may have you know vets or for other reasons are dealing with horses that are not the competition horses for the olympics or paralympics will have to have you know go through full clothes change shower you know proper scrub down uh, clean clothes clean shoes and things before coming into contact with competition horses there's going to be sanitizing disinfection stations on each barn and even from i think the 6th of july onwards there's a sanitary barrier which sounds quite scary but again it's not it's just like a wheel wash foot bars and disinfection misting fans so this is something that that games take very seriously anyway and i think they just used the news about the equine coronavirus antibodies being found as a way of sort of linking into debunking the myths showing what they're doing to keep those horses safe and and what people can expect hopefully later later on this summer so it's quite exciting Mm, and I had a sort of a bit of an Olympic week last week as well, because I went to a briefing about the playbooks which have been released. So the um, Tokyo Organising Committee have released these playbooks, which is sort of a blueprint for, um, for for everyone who's who's going to be accredited to the Games. So there's one for athletes and national federations. There's a press one. Um, I think there are four in total for sort of different stakeholders. And the briefing I went to last week was about the press playbook. So it was really interesting to find out some more plans for um for, for, for the accredited press going to Tokyo oh brilliant what kind of things are covered in in those Pippa well I, the, the press one was obviously the one I had to look at the most and a lot of it is very much what you would expect uh you know those of us who've, who've sort of been living with with coronavirus for a for a year obviously social distancing that they're advising before you travel to Japan that you should basically for 14 days before you travel you should do as little as possible outside of home um you're going to have to be tested before you leave um you may be tested during the games as part of your role you're going to have to file a sort of activity plan in advance saying where you're going 
going to go and you will basically only be able to go where you need to go you won't be able to sort of pop off to different restaurants every night or uh, go and visit a friend if you know someone who lives in uh, Tokyo or whatever you're going to be sort of a bit like the horses in your bubble only going to sort of the hotel and and your venue and and the places you actually need to go. It sounds like it's going to be quite different to previous games and I mean, obviously, Horse and Hound, we're going to be covering it. And, and where where are we at at the moment in terms of what our plans are for that? Yeah, you're right, Lucy. It is going to be very different. And our plans are, are fairly well advanced, but still to be confirmed, as I think a lot of things are for the Games organisers. So we have um, two journalist accreditations for the Olympics, which will be taken by me and Polly Bryan, our dress editor, and also a photographer accreditation. So Peter Nixon will be will be out with us as well. We also have you as our uh, woman on the ground at the Paralympics, um, which is exciting. And we all have our flights booked. That was a decision we decided to take in the autumn last year in the sort of hope the games were going to go ahead before the, the flights got outrageously expensive. So flights are booked. Um, we have sort of our broad overview of paging in terms of knowing how many pages we'll be giving to each discipline in which issue. I'm actually going to a meeting this afternoon to talk about staffing here in England during the games because as often happens during Olympics, we will have a couple of late night press days one of the things about horse sport and our press day is that horse and hound goes to press on a Monday and most horse sport is centered around the weekends and that works well. Olympics aren't really respecters of weekends or of horse and hounds press days. So we will have three late night press days and um, one issue that's on sale on a Friday rather than a Thursday during the Olympics just to get everything to our readers in the most timely fashion possible. So we're going to be talking about how we staff those through the night press days and shifts and what extra sort of support we need to bring in, you know, for the people at home. as as well as out in Tokyo so yeah our plans are moving on and it's exciting and sort of everything very much very much crossed for the games. Can I put in an order for Haribo because I remember the the late night all we had all night of press days during Rio and it was definitely big buckets of Haribo that, that got us through. I yeah, remember. I think we should uh, get put in sort of a, a special order with Haribo to deliver massive tubs. <laughs> Hopefully, maybe you'll even be in an office and be able to do it all together rather than at home. Which, uh, <laughs> might, might be fun, although I guess if you're at home, it's good to be able to go to your bed straight after you've finished. <laughs> well, definitely looking forward to that. And thank you, Lucy, for dispelling the myths about equine coronavirus for us. Um, Eleanor, a really different topic this week that you've been looking at. It's uh, a a piece of research which sounded really interesting. What's it all about? Yeah, this was it was really interesting. They were looking at um, the horse-human relationship, which has become talked about a lot recently. The World Horse Welfare had it as their um, theme of their conference last year. And it was the, sort of based on interviews with horse owners and then looking at the wider population with some issues that were thrown up. It was about how the relationship between uh, owners and their horses has an effect on the decisions they make through that horse's lifetime. Hmm, That's really interesting. And what sort of decisions did did the research look at and what did they find out? Two of the main ones were um, buying that horse and uh, right through to the other end where you have to make the the end of life decisions. And one thing one of the researchers pointed out is it's such a unique relationship because this horse goes from a financial sort of investment, a financial decision to then a lot of the people were describing their horses as one of the family or their best friends. But then, of course, you do get to the point where you have to make that decision at the end of life. So it's a it's a huge 
issue and a huge relationship and, and throwing up all sorts of things. And it sounds like the piece about having pauses put down is one of the, the really major areas of this research. Did the team have any suggestions for sort of making that process easier for, for owners or better in the future? What did they find out? Yeah, well, they, they found one of the things they were sort of concerned about was this, what they were calling responsibility grief. So where obviously because you have to make that decision and even though it, it's absolutely the right decision and the best thing for that horse's welfare, a lot of people were feeling guilty sometimes for years later. And one thing that they're now working on is this um, shared decision making. So their um, shared decision making models so all the team involved in a horse you know the vet the owner possibly the yard owner maybe the sharer if you've got one will be able to sit down together and talk it through so that the owner then or everyone but especially the owner at the end of it is clear that that is the right decision and the only decision and hopefully it will they a they don't feel they've made that decision by themselves but b all avenues have been explored and they know it is the only decision for that horse Thank you, Eleanor. That sounds like a fascinating piece of research. And obviously, you can read more about that in this week's magazine, as always with all of our stories. Becky, coming to you, last of all, you've been working on a story which is close to your heart about eventing in Scotland. There's a new group that's been set up to try and help the sport in Scotland. Tell us a bit more about that. So a group of individuals have launched the Scottish Venting Group. Now, this has been launched owing to the fact that we've seen a number of venues drop off the British eventing calendar over the years, be it, you know, they've run for a long time or organisers have sort of moved on or retired. And really, there isn't a huge amount of opportunities in Scotland for eventing, but certainly there are lots of keen riders. Okay, and what sort of thing is the group aiming to do? Well, the group's really looking to fill gaps in the calendar and encourage different venues to, say, host an event or, you know, host a hunter trial and really support some of these perhaps smaller or new venues to become more established. A survey has been launched by the group to really find out what riders want and the group's also aiming to provide lots of volunteer training and really support people looking to get involved. Great. And I was interested to read that they were also sort of looking at venues that might think they don't have the land to, to actually run a horse trials. And they were talking about running, you know, maybe like a derby competition with 12 fences or whatever and, and trying to get people involved in that way. That's right. And, you know, they're sort of suggesting even sort of venues sharing jumps, you know, having portable jumps that could be moved around between venues and each year even, you know, then buying more fences or building more fences. And I think it's really quite exciting just to really help, you know, these venues grow and, you know, become more established. Sure. And how will that fit in sort of within affiliated sport north of the border, the events run by British Eventing? Well, the group really hopes to work with BE. Um, there's no intention, you know, to clash with any current fixtures. The ultimate hope is that the group can offer the guidance and support some of these venues that would hopefully in a few years time graduate to becoming BE fixtures themselves. So it sounds really positive for the sport and I hope everyone's going to get behind this group and, you know, take the survey and we'll hopefully see it grow. Hmm, great. Sounds like good news for um for, for Scottish eventers and and aspiring eventers. So thank you, Becky, for looking into that one. And thank you, Lucy and Eleanor, for joining us today too. The Horse and Hound podcast is currently supported by NAF. Help provide a happy, healthy tummy daily by addressing your horse's gastrointestinal challenges. Simply feed Gastriade from NAF. 
formulated to maintain gastric health, soothe the stomach wall and help balance pH levels within the gut. Give your horses a winning constitution. Now it's over to Alan Davies, groom to Carl Hester and Charlotte Dujardin. Over to you, Alan. On this episode, we're going to be looking at bringing horses back into fitness um, from a break. Obviously, it's at this weird time that we've been having. Um, people have had to give horses a break. Um, maybe you haven't been able to work them or you've not got any competitions to go to, so you thought maybe it was, now is the time to give them a break. We've done exactly the same at our place. Some have stayed in work, some of the younger ones have stayed in work because um, it was a good time to um, give them some training. Some of the older horses, um, we weren't sure what shows they were going to, so they've had a bit of break, a bit of a break. Um, they go in the field a bit more, a little bit of hacking. Um, if the horses have had a complete break and they've gone in the field and they haven't been ridden, depending on how long you haven't ridden them for, if it's a few weeks, then you need to be really careful how you get back on. Have a look at their condition and weight and make sure the saddle is going to fit okay. So you want the saddle to go on and be nice, um, nicely fitting and doesn't move. So if they're going to be fresh, you want to be able to stay on and the saddle doesn't move. Make sure the sort of girth area is really clean. Um, you don't want the girth to go on and have it not been on for a long time. Uh, you don't want any rubbing or anything to happen there, so make sure that the girth area is clean. You know, feel underneath with your hands, make sure there's no dirt or mud or any residual grease left from when they were having their holiday. Make sure it's really clean. Sometimes it's easy to miss things like that. You know, when you're grooming, it's easy to just to brush the bits so you can see when you're getting them ready. But make sure um, the girth area and under the saddle is really clean. And then we usually will put the tack on and then someone would walk them with no one on, just walk them in hand, make sure they're feeling okay. And then generally someone will hold them while uh, the rider gets on and then maybe even lead them for a little bit with a lunge line in case of anything happening, anything spooking them when you first got on so everything can be calm and relaxed. And generally after a after a holiday, our horses will, will get on them in the arena, make sure everything's fine, and then take them straight out down the drive. We've got quite a long drive at Carl's, um, so they know that. They, they hack out a lot, so they know the drive, and it's generally best to get them going forward and get them out in the open. And we will, if they've had, you know, two or three, four weeks maybe off, then they will go straight out hacking. Um, and they'll hack around the roads. Depending on each horse, possibly they'll hack just gently walking for two to three weeks maybe. And then gradually the amount of hacking will be reduced. We'll hack out for a bit less and then come back and then maybe start the trot and canter in the school. Just have a few rounds of trot gently, um, just stretching them in the school when we get back and then gradually build that up. Obviously you have to um, cater for each, each individual horse, what your horse, your age of your horse, and what sort of work they have been doing before they had their holiday, and then what sort of holiday they have, and how they've taken their holiday. Some horses cope 
better with holidays. You know, Vallegro always used to get quite fat and lose his muscle quite quickly on a holiday. So we tended not to, as he got older, not to give him too much time off. You know, it was always, it was always a lovely thought to come back from a big show or a championship and say, oh, he can have, you know, a few weeks in the field chilling. But in actual fact, when they get older, it's, it's better to let them have a bit of time in the field and then actually take them for a, a hack or a stroll. And um, that's what we used to do with Vallegro. I used to hack him um, after shows. He'd have a few days in the field recovering, um, making sure everything was okay after he'd done a long trip, if he'd, you know, like when I'd taken him to Las Vegas or um, for the World Cup finals when he'd been to Rio. He'd come home, have a few days just turning out and chilling out, and then I would hop on him and take him for a hack. He loved it. He loves going out hacking. And it was good for his muscles and good for his body. And um, it, it just helps keep them together and in shape. Because if they lose too much muscle, too much top line, it can take a while as they get older to get them back into shape. So um, a bit of gentle hacking can do, them, can do them the world of good. It's good leg stretch and it keeps the muscles working, walking up hills and things. Um, the vets and the physios all say it's, it's good to give them a holiday and it's good to give them time off. And Carl loves to see them um, in the field after they've been to a big show and they've, they've had a, um, a long trip maybe. So yeah, so I hope that helps with bringing your horses back in after the holidays. Thank you, Alan. Alan will be back with us next week to talk about handling hot horses. Our guest will be Liz Halliday-Sharp, who was the leading event rider in the US last year and won more international classes than any other eventer anywhere across the world in 2020. Of course, I'll also be talking to my colleagues on the news desk about all the latest goings on in the horse world. Thank you for listening to the Horse and Hound podcast, which is currently supported by NAF. Please do rate, review and share the podcast to help us spread the word. Goodbye until next week. The Horse and Ham podcast is a Media Cage production.